Thanks for listening and welcome to the Bridges Community Church Podcast. Christ alone offers freedom, but we often keep ourselves locked up by trying to add on to His gift, and we further tighten the chains. Christ alone offers freedom to step outside the gates of our prisons and learn to experience life on the outside. Listen in as we check out our current series on the New Testament book of Galatians titled Life on the Outside with today's teaching pastor, Ron King. Morning, church family. So good to have you here with us. And if you're new, you're just starting to figure out whether this might be a place that could bring encouragement to you. And uh, we want to say welcome to you. I know sometimes when you get to a new place, it can feel a little awkward. And um, just want to let you know that you can relax here. This is, we're not trying to get anything from you. We just would love to help you understand how to have a healthy, alive relationship with the Lord God who made you, created you, and has given purpose and meaning to your life. So welcome. Uh, Really wonderful to have you. Before we dive into God's Word together this morning, and by the way, it's okay. It's okay if you're new, and um, when I mentioned that, I called the Bible God's Word. If you're feeling like, not sure if I really fully buy into that, whether that's actually God's Word to me. There are a lot of us gathered here this morning that are convinced of that through logical reasons and through personal experience. But if you're still in that space where you're trying to figure it out, we're great with that. Just invite you to open up and study for yourself and investigate it. So that's part of what we're going to be doing. We're going to dive into a a portion, uh, a book here called Galatians. And we're looking at Galatians chapter 2, if you turn your attention over there. Now, we're beginning this morning, if you're just starting with us, in the thick of it, in the middle of this study we're doing in the book of Galatians, you might ask yourself, well, what does this have to do with me? And, and how does the book of Galatians really, I mean, written all those years ago, how does it have practical application in my life? And that's a good question. Every time we hop into God's word and start studying and start thinking about it, we want to ask that question. It's not removed because if it is God's word, it is going to speak to me and it's going to change me in ways that God needs to change me in my heart and my thinking and my behavior. And same way with Robin and Shoba, right? He's going to be at work with you guys when we study God's word together. So it is a, it's just a great joy that we can have this confidence. And as before I read these words, a couple brief words of context. So we're stepping into the middle of Paul giving his story. The end of chapter one, we found that Paul was describing what had happened to him so people would understand why he's so passionate about what he's writing. And he gives kind of a reader's digest of his life, of what had happened to him. And what happened to Paul was both sudden and gradual. By that, I mean, at one point in his life, he was as far away from following Jesus as a person could get. He was in the thick of grabbing Christians and and arresting them and participating in their execution as bad as you could, far away from Jesus as you could possibly get. And he was convinced that by a series of good things that he was doing, at least in his mind, great acts, sacrificial things, zealous, passionate following of a different way, that he was going to earn God's approval and favor. And then one day when he was in the middle of it, on a road going to Damascus, Things changed. 
I don't know exactly how to describe everything that happened that day for Paul, but Paul writes it in the book of Acts, chapter 9. And he says, he was walking along the road. And as he walked, this sudden shock happened in his life. He was convinced that Jesus was dead, convinced that he was in a grave. And all of a sudden, he finds himself talking to the living Lord Jesus who revealed himself to Paul, showed Paul how wrong he had been. And Paul is humbled, absolutely brought low before this. And his life has changed. Suddenly he discovers that there's grace, that is unmerited love and forgiveness and mission, purpose in life to be found in a completely different way than he had been pursuing. It's found in Jesus. And in this good news, that a person can have relationship and forgiveness and life in God by faith alone. Just me placing my full confidence in what Jesus has done, his accomplished work on what he did in the cross. And when a person does that by faith alone in Christ alone, they're rescued, they're made new, they're, they're saved. So Paul discovers that, and it's sudden for him. He becomes a follower of Jesus. But it's also gradual because there is a process by which a person matures. And so Paul takes time away. He doesn't just dive right in and do all these things. God is at work in him. He takes, he takes many years. And in that process, God has been at work in Paul. And Paul starts telling other people about this good news. And people start responding to this good news. And he's seeing people become disciples. By that word, we mean this. A person is a disciple as they become a fully devoted, though not fully formed, follower of Jesus. The forming is happening. All next year, we're going to be talking about this one theme, renew is what we call it. It's part of our, the bigger picture of how a person becomes a disciple. The first step is what happened to Paul, this step of commitment, placing our faith in him. Commit, that's the first part of how I become a follower of Jesus. But there's a process, too, by which God makes me new. He refreshes and renews and brings from death to life those places, the, the habits and the hang-ups, the, the junk in my life, and renews that process. The theological word for it is sanctification. He makes me holy. He makes me like Jesus. So, that's the renewal process that's happening in Paul as he has stepped away and God's been at work with him. And what we've discovered is that as Paul writes in the book of Galatians, he's passionate about a few things. He's still a zealot in his heart, but now he's zealous about the things that really are the heart of it. And what's at the heart of it for Paul is what we call the gospel or the good news. And I've just described it that you can have life and forgiveness and wholeness and health, deliverance from your sin, your brokenness, the destructive habits that you have in your life by placing your faith in Christ and Christ alone. And when that happens, when you take that step of dependence on him, you're made new. Now, there's quite a few of you. I'm looking at your eyes. I see your faces who have taken that step in your life to follow Jesus, and you've discovered the reality of this. For Paul, that message, the good news, and the good news alone, not adding on to other things, and so I trust Jesus and do all these other things, but that message alone, that was the defining message for his life. 
Now, you might ask the question, so what? I mean, is it really that big of a deal? Because in Galatians, it's a big deal for Paul. It's a really big, fat, hairy deal, right? It's big. So why? There's history there. If you don't know, over the course of the church's history, over the last several thousand years, couple thousand years, people have died for this very issue. The Reformation was all about this, about it's not the gospel plus all these other acts that I can do. It is about the gospel and the gospel alone. So men like John Wycliffe who proclaimed it, and then once he died, the Others dug up his grave and burned it, you know, burned his bones and destroyed him. And one of the people that was influenced by John Wycliffe, Jan Hus, who stood up and said, no, it can only be the gospel and gospel alone. He's burnt the stake. And there's all these people through the Reformation who gave their lives once again for this one message, the gospel, that is by faith and faith alone and Jesus and Jesus alone that rescues a person. That's the thing that we're gripping onto, holding onto, and would give everything we have for. So with that context, listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2 as we hop into the middle of his telling his life story. Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 10. And it's going to take your good reading because um, this is written not originally in English. And so in English, the translation comes out as a run-on sentence, actually a couple of run-on sentences. I'll read it slowly. And then as we know, God's word, the great thing about God's word is it's here for us to speak into our lives, to change us. So think with me through these words. Paul writes, then after 14 years, after this long season of being away from all these other people who could influence him, and processing what God has done through the gospel and seeing other people's lives changes. He tells the story of his own personal experience. I went up again to Jerusalem. That's where the church in those days was centered. With Barnabas. Barnabas is this guy who had come to him as a friend and recognized that God's hand was on Paul and encouraged him when no one else was going to do it because Paul had this crazy bad reputation of being a killer. But, Paul, but Barnabas stepped into Paul's life and started discipling him, started encouraging him and nurturing his faith and his ministry capacity, taking Titus along with me. Titus, a young man who had come to faith in Jesus, and they were discipling together. I went up, he's talking about to Jerusalem, because of a revelation and set before them, that is the leaders of the church of Jerusalem, the privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel, that is the one thing we're talking about, right? This great truth that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. Now, that's a phrase, for those of you who are students of the word, have heard several times, right? Because Paul writes that phrase, to run in vain. That's, that's the one thing he wants to guard himself from. He doesn't want to be running in one direction and at the end of the day find out, wow, that was really stupid. I wasted my life. I wasted my energies and all my passions, everything I've done. He's really very centered on running the right direction with his life, making sure that it counts. So he goes up to Jerusalem for this one purpose, to make sure that he's not been off the tracks, to make sure he's got alignment in this message that he's preaching with those who are leading the church in Jerusalem. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, 
though he was a Greek. In all his ways, Titus was not a Jew. He was not a follower of the law. And the issue for these people, of course, was, if you don't know, was that they thought there was a gospel, this great truth of Jesus' gift to us, and they had to do all this other stuff, their cultural and religious heritage, in order for God to accept them. But here's Titus who comes to them. And he was a Greek. He hadn't been circumcised, hadn't followed the law at all. Yet because of false brothers, Paul writes, secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. There are people who have done everything possible, including laying their life down, so that you might know the truth. And Paul says, I'm here, and I've gone through all these things to preserve truth, so you might know it. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me from mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that is Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. That's a mouthful, isn't it? And it might be a little confusing, but again, when God's word speaks, it has great purpose. So we're going to dig in and try to discover the purpose of this written with us in mind and with God's spirit working in us as we dig in. So Paul's telling his story, isn't he? Telling a story of why he went to Jerusalem and what was beneath that trip, why it was, he was passionate about it and what the conversation entailed and where they ended up with the conversation. You can find details of it in the book of Acts. In the heart, in the middle of the book of Acts, it retells this story in greater detail. Paul says that they came, they went to Jerusalem because of a revelation. Do you see that? The question is, because the language and the direction of the language is a little bit fuzzy, what was a revelation? Well, I know there's a couple things going on at least. First, Jesus had revealed himself personally to Paul. That's why Paul was now a believer and a follower of him. And it happens in every person's life who follows Jesus that all of a sudden there's a moment of clarity where it all makes sense. Because of other people's, um, their testimony, the way they've lived their life for us, and we see their life, and we're like, wow, yeah, that starts to make sense with me. And then they, they're hungry to discover it, and they start to read God's word, maybe just baby steps at first, and it starts to make sense to them, clarity, who Jesus is, that he's not some myth, or he's not who some science teacher that you had in middle school says they are, but actually there's reality here that he was this historical figure, that he lived and he died and he actually rose again. And when you catch who he is, when that's revealed to him, then you have an opportunity to go through experience like Paul to become new as you place your faith in him. So 
that's part of the revelation, and it could well have been that Paul was told by God directly, get your tail to Jerusalem. Now is the time to go there. So whatever the revelation was, we know that God is in the purpose of this, of revealing himself and his purpose to us. And the primary way that happens for you today is right here. That's why we call it God's word, because it's not trying to be confusing. There are very clear instructions to us that reveal God and reveal his plan for us today and how to live right here. So Paul goes to Jerusalem. And Paul wanted to make sure that he had not run in vain. That phrase I mentioned as we were reading through it. Paul uses that metaphor of running quite often. And he doesn't look at our Christian life, our life of following Jesus as a short sprint. Though I know people who have treated that, treated it like that. And what happens is when a person gets all fired up for their newfound faith in Jesus and they go 100 miles an hour for the first week and then they flame out, they haven't seen what the Christian life is like. The Christian life is more like a marathon. If you've run a long race, you know exactly that um, the marathon is hard and the training for it is difficult. And when you're in the middle of the run, um, at least for me, my experience was there were times where I was saying, what in the world am I doing? And it's painful. And, it's, and you're, you're thinking, oh, man, this is, I should, what have I signed myself up for? And that's faith, really, truly. Following Jesus that is going to be filled with seasons that are difficult and hard and full of pain and struggle. And so Paul is saying, have I had a run in vain? So he, he has this conversation with the leaders in Jerusalem. I want to make sure that I... I'm not running in vain. And that the thing that's most important to me, this gospel, is the truth. It's reality. I know that I've experienced it. I've seen it work in the life of other people. But let's make sure we're all on the same page here, that we're all running the same direction. And I haven't run foolishly or gotten off track. So Paul says, have I run in vain? And he discovers that those in Jerusalem, John and Cephas, Peter and James, they agree with him, that they're on the same page, that the gospel is at the focus of it. But he goes to Jerusalem, not just because of revelation, but to get good, wise counsel from people that are respected. And I think that speaks to a principle for us that's really critical. Have you ever wondered whether your life is going sideways a bit? No, huh? Or have you ever wondered whether, man, what I'm reading here, sometimes I know I can read it through Ron Glasses, that is, I can read it through my own self-absorption or my own sinfulness, my own twistedness, and try to twist God's word to say what I want it to say. And so it's okay to do this thing and not that thing. And I can get confused, and I can get uh, my own stuff as I study God's word. There is great importance of us being together as a church family. We bring correction to each other, and we have other people speak into our lives. And that's why I mentioned when Mark was up here, he does that really well. And Mark, on several occasions, has spoken into my life, and I deeply value that when people do that. I'm not above anybody else. Neither are you. So there's this great thing that Paul is doing because there's great value in the wise counsel of trusted followers of Jesus. Actually, that's at the heart of all that we do here in our ministries that are going on right now this morning. We believe that children need to have other people speak into their lives. 
and that our students, our high school and junior hires, need to have other people speak into their lives. Parents, are you with me on that one? Whew, I am. And we believe as adults that in our um, families, we start to raise our families, our kids are young, and all, it spurs all these questions in us, right? Or we're a single person, and, and we've got all these questions about life in that stage, that it's really valuable to have other people speaking into our lives, wise counsel, people who are godly and know God's word. That's one of the reasons why we gather together on a Sunday morning, isn't it? So that we can sharpen each other and nurture each other. That there is great value, and that's why Paul went. Because it's easy to get squirrely with our theology and with our life practice. And we just have to humbly recognize that and all recognize that, man, I need John to speak into my life today. That's part of being the family of God. I need Bob to speak into my life today, and, and we need to be sharpening each other in love and grace and wisdom. We do that together. So that's why Paul goes to Jerusalem. Proverbs 10, 20 says, the tongue of the righteous is choice silver. Actually, there's a lot of Proverbs that speak to this about the importance of godly counsel together. But I like that one in particular because it tells me the value of those people who are righteous, who are following the Lord, and who can speak into my life. It's, it's critical for me and for you. As Paul tells his story of his account there, something should have struck you because there's a phrase that he repeats, and it's an interesting phrase. He's describing those leaders who everybody in the Christian church in those days had a huge regard for. They respected them. They were right up on the pedestal, right? And what is he, how does he describe them? He says they seemed to be influential. Did you catch that? He repeats it several times. They had the appearance of it. They seemed, but why would Paul... Say it that way. Interesting way to describe them, isn't it? I think it is. I think he's saying something about the issue, as he's already touched on it, of authority. Do you know this? Leaders can be wrong. I know it's shocking to you, right? But I know you see my life, you see me be wrong on several occasions. Leaders can be wrong. And those people that we can put up on a pedestal, we can do so in a dangerous way. Paul sees them as his brothers in Christ Jesus. And he respects them because they're going to give them wise counsel. They talk together about it. But he also wants to guard us from doing the foolish human thing that we can do sometimes is putting people on this great pedestal as if they'll never fail. But you and I, if we've lived a few years know that every leader fails and sometimes spectacularly. So where do we put our confidence? Not in the people themselves. Where? Yeah, I hope you're putting your confidence as a follower of Jesus in where real, real authority is found, and that is Jesus and his word. The things that you can absolutely, in a guaranteed fashion, trust. And know because they are faithful and true. I wish I could stand before you and say, I am absolutely faithful and true. But I can't. I'm a human. I fail. I sin. And every leader that I know that I've ever met in my entire life is just like that. And if they're not a, transparent enough to say it, then they're lying to you. 
Paul has already in Galatians written about his own sinfulness, his own brokenness before God and the things that he has done that violated God's heart and his will for his life. So I think he's writing that phrase. They seem to be influential to help us understand that there is one who should be absolutely authoritative and influential for us, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's done that because he alone has integrity and credibility for us. Know that he has lived in front of us in real time in history, a perfect life, and that he gave himself, sacrificed himself for me and for you, and that he proved his authority through rising from the dead and ascending. So that's why authority rests in Christ and Christ alone. We exist as a fellowship to glorify God and to equip you to dig into God's word for yourself. And the reason why we keep saying those kind of things and doing those kind of things, whether it's with the nursery school or children's ministries or youth ministry or adult ministry, is because we believe our authority rests here in these words. These words are authoritative because they reveal Christ and they reveal for us a way to, to live. So Paul tells his story and he gets at this authority issue by using that phrase. And he gets at this gospel that they agree upon, that it's not just theoretical language, but Paul brings an object lesson. Now, um, I need a volunteer, just one volunteer. Great, Suv, come on up if you would, please. Thanks. Thank you, brother. That's so much for being willing to do that. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Now, I know some of you will think I'm not sitting up close because he does this kind of things occasionally. So if I need you to close your eyes and just trust me, I'll, I'll be totally good to you, okay? And hold out your hand. And I just need you to identify this. I'm going to put something in your hand. I want you to identify it. And um, without opening your eyes, I need to be sure of what it is, okay? So here you go. Here's something right there for your hand. And tell me what it is. Once you're absolutely positive what it is, you can smell it. You could taste it. You could do whatever you want. It feels like an apple. Okay, but are you positive it's an apple? Do you want to probably use your senses? Yes. Do you have any other senses? <laughs> you want to smell it? It's okay. It's not. It came out of the fridge. It came out of the fridge. Okay. <laughs> but you're positive it's an apple? You... It is an apple. It is an apple. What if it's got something else? Maybe it just feels like a, maybe it's plastic and there's something inside. Just smell it. If you... no, it's real. It's real. You're positive. Okay, you're confident. Okay, you're right. You're true. It is an apple. Okay, that, that wasn't a hard test, right? No, thank you. Now, thanks. <clears throat> the reason I say that is Paul brought an object lesson to Jerusalem. And um, it's so people could absolutely know for sure what Paul was saying was true. Thank you very much. You can sit down. I really appreciate that. That wasn't rocket science. I did something easy, but I appreciate you helping me. Um, the object lesson was a man. His name was Titus. He brought Titus along with them and Barnabas so that people could see that a person who was not a Jew, who was not following the law in any other way, could have real faith, saving faith, rescuing faith, in Jesus, and Jesus would change a person. He brought Titus to see the power of the gospel unleashed in a person's life who was going a different direction, all of a sudden discovered what a relationship with God was like, and now he's a changed person. He brought him as an object lesson, and they could see Titus. 
They can have conversation with Titus. You can't with an apple, I realize that. They could sense him. They knew him and he was present. And all those gathered here, Paul used it for his, for his appeal to them so they could see that it's only faith in Christ alone that saves a person. Titus walks into the room and, and it's no longer theoretical, is it? The discussion about whether you can have Jesus and other things are needed too. They see Titus and he's clearly not a Jew in any way. He's a Jew. And now they've got to make a decision. What actually saves a person? Let's agree together on this one thing. Now, why was it so important for Paul to help them all get on the same page, to make sure they were all heading the same direction? What was at stake? There was a lot at stake. The unity of the church over the course of history was at stake. Those people who follow Jesus and claim the gospel and the gospel alone. Their own freedom. For Paul, he uses this loaded language. It's the difference between freedom and slavery. Why was it so loaded? Because in the first century, in the culture where he's writing and talking and having this discussion, there were slaves in the room who were followers of Jesus. There were slave owners in the room who were followers of Jesus. All these people who were following Christ had suffered the injustice and the indignities of slavery. And Paul's using this arresting imagery for them to see that that's slavery. Slavery is the gospel plus other stuff. Don't add on to the pure good grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't do that because that road is slavery. Freedom is found in faith in Christ alone. And so Paul would be willing to fight for it because our freedom in Christ is worth fighting for. It's worth fighting for. Listen, um, in my house, I know it never happens in your house. In my house, occasionally we have fights. Okay, we have disagreements. We don't slug out, you know, we don't, you know, but there are occasionally, actually this morning, <laughs> there was one of those um, strong disagreements. <clears throat> I won't go into details about it. You don't need to know. I'm going to protect my family a bit here. But there are occasionally strong disagreements about stupid stuff. Right, it's, it's not stuff that really matters. And all of a sudden you find yourself like fighting for something, you know, that, and you're like, what, what did we just do? Why didn't we go down that road? That was silly. But for Paul, he chooses this one thing to fight over and it should be something worth fighting over. It's right and healthy that people have given their lives for this truth and preserved it for you, for your sake, so you would know the truth. That it's not about Jesus plus, it's not about this gospel plus other things. It matters because people in my neighborhood need to know it and need to be set free out of their slavery into freedom to live a life that's right and whole and healthy before God and to know that everything else will captivate them and destroy them and prison them. That there's freedom in the gospel. So, Paul is willing to fight over it because he knows if you add on to it, if you add on to this truth, that's syncretism. That's adding on to the truth. I have people who are near and dear in my life who have once embraced the gospel, once knew that it was just about Christ and what he's done for us. And now they've added on to that, doing all these other things, pleasing other religious authorities and doing other things. That, that's important too. In fact, that's essential for them too. And, and those things, brothers and sisters, that, that's worth guarding ourselves over. So Paul is willing to go to the mat for it. 
to fight over it. And then we see at the end, as, as they, they have this discussion, they get on the same page, that they make this agreement. And the agreement is that they're going to cheer on each other's ministries, that they're wired differently, that James is wired to, to live out his ministry and his life to attract those people who are stuck in their Judaism and need to discover Jesus. They're going to minister to people who are Jews. And Paul and Barnabas and Titus, they're wired to reach out to people who are non-Jews. That's a lot of people, right? They're, They're wired to reach out to those people and to focus on those people. And they decide in a right and healthy way that they're, they're, it's a, the kingdom of God is about stuff that's far bigger than us and our own culture. And each of us are gifted to go minister to other cultures. Some of us gifted to minister cross-culturally. Natalie Laos here. Welcome, Natalie. Great to have you back. And Natalie has been in India doing uh, ministry there. Praise God that he would use us across a culture because it just shows the power and strength of God. We know our own weakness in that. And then we discover, wow, okay, the Lord God can use me wherever he wants. And our job is to get, um, to get focused on cheering each other on as, he serves, as we serve in different places. James and Peter and John, they were gifted to serve in this one place. And they agree on that. And Paul and Barnabas and Titus They can serve in another place. I meet every week with a group of pastors here in our city who love the gospel and are passionate about reaching this area for Jesus. And we pray together. We pray for our churches to thrive and we pray for each other and for our ministry, our families. We pray in a bigger picture that it's not just about bridges. It's about the kingdom of God. And we serve together in partnership, which is huge because God has designed us as believers in Christ so that we might cheer on the success of others and help them thrive in their strengths and their giftings and callings. Not to be jealous that other people might succeed, but to to hope for their success, to hope for their growth. I hope that churches around here who follow Jesus, that they thrive and they grow. It's not about us competing to be the biggest church or, or the best church in the area. It's about us being excellent for the kingdom of God and cheering other people on And that's what happens at the end of the day. They discover that partnership is the plan of God. And we can do this together. And we're stronger when we do it together as opposed to trying to compete with one another. Or say, no, we have to just minister to this one culture. What would would have happened at the end of the day if they decided, no, we're all just about this one people group? I would have been left on the outside. But instead, they captured really the heart of what Jesus had spoken in Matthew 28, that this is about the gospel is about every ethnos, every people group on the face of the earth. Then they make this one final statement. Those leaders in Jerusalem say, yeah, we agree on this and we agree that we should be ministering these different cultures, but there's one condition. You catch the condition at the end of the text. It's not a condition about works or the law. It's a condition that says the gospel, what God does in my life to rescue me, it always has an effect. And one of those key clear effects that always happens is that I remember the poor, that I have a heart, a compassion for those people who are trapped in poverty. It's not a social gospel they're preaching, but they're saying the gospel is always lived out. 
Only at the very end of this, verse 10, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do, because the gospel provokes that in us. Why? Because Jesus loved and cared for the poor. That was, that was what he did. And when I follow Jesus, that gets provoked in my heart that I might love and care for the poor. Why? Because the real gospel, it changes a person into a person who is compassionate. Not to do a bunch of things that people will notice and not to follow another set of law, but I'm provoked to love people through the love of Christ, and that's compassion. James writes in James chapter 2, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin, and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. He gets into this discussion of our failing the law, but then what the gospel does to change us. And what does it do to change us? What good is it, my brothers, he says in verse 14, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can can that faith save him? Real faith actually expresses itself through works. Works doesn't save me, but it's a product of my love for Jesus to follow him, to do the practical. So he writes, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled that is, you blow them off, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The gospel has to be lived out is what he's saying. It has an expression because I discover the grace of God and love for him for me and that changes my heart and it expresses itself in reality. So how do you live out this word to you? couple quick application points, if you would. First, there is this great call, I think, in this text to remember that other brothers and sisters need to speak into our lives so we don't get off track and run in vain. We have to make sure we're listening and, and getting the wise counsel of others. So if you have an issue in your life right now you're wrestling with, get wise counsel from people who are godly, who are walking with him. Second, that we do this in partnership together. And perhaps there is a person uh, who is following Jesus that you know, that you need to cheer on, not be competitive with, but actually to cheer on in their faith. Give them an encouraging word because we're in this mission together with all these other believers that are here in Fremont. And it's only a small portion of all those who have yet to come to Christ. There are 94 at least percent in Fremont who did yet to follow Jesus. And there are not enough churches, not enough believers yet to even put a dent on that. So we need to cheer other people on and pray for them. Pray for the churches in our community today that they might thrive and grow and be able to proclaim the gospel as it's given to us. And finally, um, I think this week, God's going to give you an opportunity to be compassionate, to care for someone who has less than you. Do that not trying to follow a law, but to express your faith and your love for Jesus. Some very practical ways you can live out the passage here this morning.
Thanks so much for listening to the Bridges Podcast. Check out Bridges Community Church website at bridgescc.org for more information.